0: Welcome to the Gab Talks by the Independent Press Award. I'm your hostess, Gabby Olzak. Today, we will be speaking with award-winning novelist, A.J. Sidransky. Alan's most recent book, Incident at San Miguel, will be released on May 19th. Alan has penned numerous articles, short stories, and historical fiction novels, including his debut, Forgiving Maximo Rothman, which is book one in the Forgiving series, and The Interpreter. Book One in the Justice series. Alan is fluent in Spanish and considers the Dominican Republic his second home and an inspiration for many of his stories. A Bronx native, Alan is a longtime resident of Washington Heights, where he lives with his wife, a political advertising consultant. Welcome, Alan, and congratulations on your new novel.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It's so great to have you. So let's just dive right into it. Incidents at San Miguel. Set in 1959, Havana, Cuba, during the Cuban Revolution. uh, It also covers its aftermath. It's a historical fiction piece. And this was interesting. You collaborated with Miriam Bradman Abrahams, a gifted storyteller herself. She she really, I've read some of her work. It's fantastic. She's a Cuban-born daughter of Cuban Jewish refugees. So explain to our listeners how this collaboration was born.
1: Sure, absolutely be happy to. And, and let me thank you for inviting me on today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank uh, you. So I met, uh, I met Miriam when I wrote my debut novel, Forgiving Maximal Rothman. When I wrote Forgiving Maximal Rothman, I submitted it to the Jewish Book Council, which is an organization clearly about Jewish books that covers readers and writers all over North America. And I I submitted it to them for a review. Okay. So uh, they asked Miriam, to write the review because she had Jewish-Latin roots. And the, the story of Spaghetti of, Maxwell Rothman is actually, well, A, it's set in the Dominican Republic, or, and B, a good part of the book is based on the experiences of my great-uncle who escaped from Nazi tyranny to a place called Sosua in the Dominican Republic where 850 uh, re- Jewish refugees survived World War II. So Miriam and I, as it turns out, had a mutual friend. And she introduced us uh, about a year after the book was written, and, or the book was released, uh, and uh, we met for lunch and we became friends. Now, Miriam has done some writing, and she had uh, often said to me that she wanted to write a, a sort of a memoir about the experiences of her family during the Cuban Revolution. And uh, of course, you know, life has a way of taking us to certain places, and she was busy as was I with other things. And then in the summer prior to the pandemic, which was about 2019, 2019. yeah it was twenty nineteen it was about yeah it was about um, uh, ten years after uh, I published Maxwell no wait it was about six years after I published Maxwell Rothman she contacted me and said to me that you know she's her children are gone now and she's time to start thinking about writing or something and. Uh, she said, uh, she, "When I look over her materials, she had about eighty-five pages worth of material that she collected over the years—interviews, notes, stories, whatnot."
0: Material so about her family, Alan?
1: Yes, it was about her family primarily and their experiences during the the revolution. Her family came to uh, to Cuba in the late nineteen twenties. Her parents were born there. They met there. They were married there, and then Castro arrived. So, I'll, and I'll, I'll get I more that. into their story yeah. and so Miriam um, said to me, would you look this over? And I did, and, and she said, what do you think? And I said, well, it depends on what you want to write. I said that really is it, This material is really not a memoir because a memoir is a very specific form and format and you don't have a memoir here. I mean, if you want to write a memoir, you have to write it about the effect that this story had on your, you, not on yeah. your father and his brother. Right. So I said, well, you could write a family history. Uh, I said, but you have some great material here. Would your parents and you consider Speaking with me a little bit, and perhaps I would use some of this material to build a novel around it because you have very dramatic stuff here. So she spoke to her folks who said, Yes, absolutely. And I went down to Brooklyn where her parents live and we spent some time together, a good amount of time together. And I determined that, you know, this would make a great uh, background for a novel. I mean, the, the truth is that, you know, lots of people have lots of stories. And that's sort of what I specialize in. I write stories about ordinary people who uh, caught up in extraordinary circumstances, like the Cuban Revolution. And you know, when I sat down and spoke with the parents and I heard the stories that they had, I knew that I had stuff there for a good novel that I could build around. You know, the thing is that people will often say to me after they hear me speak about you know either the interpreter or Maximo Rothman, uh, they'll say to me, you know, I have a story, and I say, well, I'd love to hear your story. And they tell me this story, and I say to myself, "Well, it's a great story, but it won't carry a novel." This story I knew it would carry a novel.
0: This carried a novel. So, so the story focuses on a Jewish Cuban family, specifically two brothers, loosely based on Miriam's father and uncle. Cool. And two brothers are Aaron and uh, Moises. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Aaron and Moises in Spanish.
0: Okay. Um, Which people call him Aaron Moses. Okay. Yeah, we could. That's right. And they're actually diametrically opposed sides of the political sh- spectrum. What's What's the main theme of this story?
1: Well, okay, the main theme, the main question here, the main theme here is ultimately, what is your responsibility to your sibling? To you know, your sibling? Okay. You know, you, this is your blood. You know, how much obligation do you have to this person depending on the entire situation and, you know, you know what do you do for your sibling simply because he, he or she is your sibling? In this particular case, that responsibility, in this story, that responsibility shifts from one side to the other as the government shifts.
0: Right, and during the Cuban Revolution. So, sure. so I, I want to go back to your debut novel and your, your protagonist, Maximo Rothman. Sure. Uh, he said, life is too short to make enemies of those we love. Yep. Seems like also a significant thread in your novel, Incidents at San Miguel. Tell us about that.
1: Well, it's a significant concept that runs through all of my work, and it's something that I've thought about on a personal basis, you know, I I think maybe everyone thinks about this, you know, Uh, we can get into situations with friends and family where we may not agree with them on something, we may do something hurtful to them, they may do something hurtful to us. The question is about forgiveness. At what point do we forgive the other person? At one point do we say, my love for you and my relationship with you is more important than whatever the thing that you did or I did, and we need to put that behind us and move forward. In the case of Maximo Rothler, without ruining the story, because you know it doesn't really become evident until the last page, uh, as is the case with Incident of San Miguel, the real truth of, of why says did what he did for our own is in the last few pages of the book. So, in case of Massimo Rothman, he knows that his brother, who happens to be his twin, is aware of, of a terrible transgression that he made that should hurt the, his his brother immeasurably. Mm-hmm. in the end, his brother forgives him and so it's a question of forgiveness. You know forgiveness is something that I've had a lot of time to think about. I think we all do you know if we have a, our ups and downs in life, and you know we have to sort of figure out you know what caused the up and the downs, especially the downs, mm-hmm. and who's responsible and how much. You know, do we have to accept our own respons- responsibility ourselves for what happens to us? And at the same time, to be able to say to someone else, you know, yeah, it happened, but I forgive you because you're worth more to me than that particular incident.
0: Why, Alan, was this story important for you to tell? Like you said, a lot of people uh, approach you and and say they have a story to tell, but this one resonated with you, Miriam's story. Why? Why was it so important to share?
1: There were a number of reasons why it was important to share. The first was that, you know, she and I had talked about it for many years. So the side question is, why would she come to me? It wasn't just because she knew me. As she states in her foreword, she knew a lot about me and my connection to the Latin world, my connection to the Jewish world, my personal family experiences, and she thought that I would be able to handle her story. I kind of felt the same thing going in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, at the time that she came to me and, and I started reviewing her stuff, I had lunch with a friend of mine who, uh, it's a guy named Led Black, and he is the owner and operator of a website called The Uptown Collective, which is kind of the, uh, it's sort of like an uptown online newspaper. Okay. And it covers Harlem, Washington Heights, and inward, where I live in, in Washington Heights. Right. And Led is sort of the mayor of Washington Heights, and he... Uh, he was instrumental in helping me to make the Forgiving series, in particular, Forgiving Maxwell Rothman, and the third book, Forgiving Mariola Camacho, which is about the Dominican immigrant experience in the United States. He helped me, to, and he is Dominican, uh, he helped me to you know, to promote those books. So he knew my work very intimately. And I told him over lunch, and I told him the story about how Miriam had come to me with the story and i told him the gist of the story and i said to him does it should this be my next project should i do this and he said to me unequivocally he said there's no one on the planet who's was more well prepared to write this story than you at the intersection of things latin and jewish right and uh, the fact the fact that it was in cuba not the dominican republic well that's sort of an accident of history because uh i know all the cubans and dominicans listening are going to turn this off right now but frankly <laughs> their uh, their cultures are very very similar and their historical experiences particularly in terms of immigration to this country are very very similar uh the way that you know they've been treated by americans you know i said to myself okay and then i said to miriam you know, i want to talk to your parents and when i went down to meet them i fell in love with them
0: connection right away
1: yeah i, I particularly i mean not to say one over the other but her father is you know near, he's 90 now and he was it's late 80s and he was quite frail but he was as sharp as a tack mm-hmm. and he had a tremendous sense of and he really had a sense of irony about the things that had happened to him in Cuba. And so it was
0: my irony. What was ironic about it? Well he worked in the
1: the Batista government for the betterment of of the Cuban people. But in the end he wasn't you know that didn't matter. He he he. The, the view that the Castro government took of him was such that he had to leave.
0: He had to leave.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of people like this. He had to leave. Yeah. And when he told me the stories about what had happened to him and the progression of his life under the first couple of years of, of Castro's communism in Cuba, it really made me understand sort of the, uh, the connection to other refugee experiences and the refugee experience is The other thing that I write about extensively, you know, what I've come to understand about Uh, being an immigrant in general is that, you know, people make the move, the immigration from wherever they are to come to the United States, primarily because they want a better life for themselves and their family. Mm -hmm. So there's an economic imperative and often that economic imperative, it may be amplified uh, by political issues such as, you know, in the 1930s, the rise of uh, Nazism in Germany, or in the case of Cuba in the 1960s, the rise of communism in anyone in the entrepreneurial class was a target and had to leave. But I've heard all kinds of stories from all kinds of systems. And the the bottom line is that and I you know I talk a lot about this in Forgiving Marielle Comancho, when someone leaves, they have an image in their head of this place that is their place of their birth. It's seared into their mind. And they go away to another place, which is never really how they expected it to be. And never really home no and they're never really home but then at some point, if they're lucky enough they go back to the to their home place to the to this place where they were born but what they find out is that it's not the place they left right in fact it's it has changed because life goes on without you there and it changes and the society changes so what they have is this snapshot in in, a moment in time they can never go back to what they left but they're never comfortable in where they went
0: there's some sort of the, so the universe experience. If they're in some sort of limbo, actually.
1: Yes, it's like a limbo.
0: And yeah. it's a
1: very difficult place to be psychologically. And so, you know, with uh, Miriam's father, he had that same kind of and her mother, they had that same kind of reaction where as they tell you the story, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over a little bit, and they keep going, and you realize they're not really living with you in that moment, in that time, that they've, they've just gone back, you know, 50 years or 60 years to, to Cuba when they were, you know, 25 years old, and they were remembering what it was like, and they're remembering those, those emotions and those feelings, and in the case of this story, particularly because of the end of the story when, after a 40-year period where these two brothers don't see each other, they're reunited, I realized that I had the material that could support a novel. Now, it's a historical fiction, so are there parts of this that never happened? Of course. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, up front, that the okay. actual incident in San Miguel... It
0: didn't not, happen. Right, not, right. I
1: created that. I needed, I, needed, I needed the sort of the literary license and the tension that went along with that scene in order to, to, to make the novel work. But at the same time,
0: the Cuban Revolution happened and a lot of right. people got to leave. There's There are a lot of things that happen. So I understand that in 2021, you actually visited Hungary, Czechia, and Slovakia to see where your grandparents were born and to visit family. That's incredible. So tell us, Alan, how has your family history and your cultural background influenced your writing and really uh, your determination to recount and tell stories about immigrants and refugees?
1: So, it's interesting that you ask that question, because on Sunday, I did an event at a synagogue out on Little Island, this past Sunday, which was mm-hmm. April 30th. I did a, an event at a, a synagogue River Riverhead, Little Island, to commemorate Holocaust Memorial Day. And we were talking about this. So, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is that, I'm going to tell you a little story. So, when I was a child, well, a small child, we my, we lived in a two-family house with my grandparents. So, along, the, the, it was in the Bronx. Yeah. and There was this long hallway that went from the front door past, you know, the living room and the studio room into the dining room and ultimately to the back of the house. And it had this very, very long wall.
0: I can picture it. Okay.
1: So along this wall were lots and lots of framed photographs. So the the photographs of my grandmother and her family, I recognized because they came to this country in the 20s and 30s together Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. heirs. And they all lived within five blocks. You know, we always had someone to, ha- to to like. We always had someone to to have a fight with, or someone you know to have fun with. You know, because right. that's how families are. Right. I knew them, but then there were all these other photographs. That I, I know these people. So who are these people? These people were my mother's, father's, parents, and her, his siblings, and his nieces and nephews So eventually, you start questioning. Well, you know, where are these people? They're all dead. Okay. How did they die? Well, uh, a, a bad man named Hitler killed them. It's meaningless. Eventually, at some point when you're educated enough about the history of Europe and you understand that there was a terrible war in that there it was a terrible Holocaust and Jews of Europe were singled out and six million of them were murdered, then you start to, to to put two and two together you understand what happened to these people. Right. The truth is that those photographs, they have haunted me my entire life. I'm named after two of those victims. Really? And the idea of... These kinds of personal upheavals has always been something that sort of lives inside of me. So when I started to write full time, and I didn't write full time till I was past fifty, I wanted to write these stories. And as I mentioned, I tell stories about ordinary people faced with extraordinary situations and circumstances. I wrote a couple of of, uh, novels based on, uh, you know, the experiences of my uncle and then a cousin.
0: Not the forgive the forgiving series.
1: So, so it was forgiving. Marshall Rothman is based on my uncle Max,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the the interpreter is based on a cousin of mine, Kurt Berlin. We use his real name in the book, and so, you know, I I kind of explored the world of fascism and its effect on Jewish world, and you know, the, and, and a certain aspect of the Holocaust, which was not life in a concentration camp, because frankly, I don't have the chops for that. I never was in a concentration mm-hmm. camp. My parents weren't in concentration camps. I leave that to, to those people to write those stories. If right, not, you
0: talked about that. You've said you're really fundamentally against writing about that. because Yes, the- I, am under, yes I, I am
1: fundamentally against that. That should, be yeah. pre, that should be the preserve of history texts and sociology texts. It should not be the material for popular Holocaust literature because no matter how bad you might make it as a uh, as a writer, you can't make it bad enough. At it cheapest right. experience in the history okay. so how this relates to the trip to hungary was you know i started working on this book and you know i when i heard this story i realized you know what they there were so many similarities and sort of you know that what happened to people of a certain so, uh, socio-economic class in cuba and to a certain extent you know to the jewish population at the you know in germany in particular in the initial period uh, before uh, world war ii started and before the final solution was turned so my son graduated law school and i wanted to give him a special gift so the two of us went to hungary the czech republic and slovakia which was the old last year hungary to visit where my grandparents came in. and when we were in budapest we went to a museum called the museum of terror and i i'm using that term museum i'm using that a little loosely uh, it was the brainchild of a certain Viktor Orban. Mm-hmm. Orban is the uh, he's the the you know, prime minister of Hungary, and he is also the poster boy for modern day fascism. Mm-hmm. So Orban had a little bit of a brainchild. There's a building in in Budapest that was the home of a very very wealthy family prior to the Ger- the German invasion of Hungary in 1944, and he he immediately you know he threw them out, he evicted them from the building, he took the building, and he gave the building to the Gestapo and the SS, and this was the center uh th- their administrative center in budapest from 1944 to 1945 and they would torture people in the basement so when the russians showed up in i think it was january of 1945 or thereabouts they ran you know they ran west and when the soviets showed up they took over the building and they simply handed it over to the hungarian soviet secret police so the hungarian soviet secret police they operated in this building until the full communism 1989 the story that this museum pretends to tell is that is a sort of a rewritten history under Orban thought. And his position is that the Hungarians were neither communists nor fascists, but they were an occupied people from 1944 to 1989. And they were, uh, they were submitted to this terror perpetrated by both Nazis and, and communists. So what I came to understand when we were in this museum, was that while communism and fascism have diametrically opposed economic systems, one is communist, the other is is unbridled capitalism, it's corporate state capitalism. Right. Uh, they share a system of social control, and that's what they have in common. And that, so that in fact there are lots of similarities uh, to the, you know that result in. People becoming persecuted, and people being becoming refugees in, in both systems, and it sort of depends on the system, you know. In Cuba, you know, again, I don't want to get into a territory where I want to compare, you know, the, the, the Holocaust to the experience of Cubans under Castro, because the Holocaust is a unique event in human history. Right. But in communist systems worldwide, whenever a communist government takes over, the entrepreneurial class becomes a target.
0: And and a, that that was the case.
1: That was most definitely the case. And yeah. in the case, you know, and a, a, look, uh, one of the key uh, stories in this book, you know, one one of the key stories is about how Che Guevara asks the uh, Aaron Cohen character, mm-hmm. who was based on Miriam's father, to write a brief explaining how he might be able to nationalize the shoe and leather tanning industries
0: because he was an attorney. He was so an
1: attorney like for the National Bank of Cuba, mm-hmm. but in fact, what that really was was a test, because Che Guevara knew full well that this person's father owned leather tanning factories and shoe businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, it was so, a. And, and that, it- that it- part it- is true. What was loyalty was to see exactly. where uh-huh. where was you lo- I'm glad you brought up che, che because I want to ask you. And in, in a lot of many of your books, you have um, you bring up very prominent people: Che Guevara, uh, Marxist revolutionary, guerrilla leader, se- second in command of so Fidel Castro. So question for you, Alan, if you could, which giant of history would you like to meet and what would you ask him or her?
1: Does that have to be an evil person or could it be anyone?
0: It could be anybody you want. Wow.
1: That's a big question. There's a bunch. I can tell you the guy who's at the absolute top of the list. And let me put it this way. The guy I'd like to have lunch with. Okay. Barack Obama.
0: Oh, okay. That's a good one. Okay. And what would you ask him or say to him?
1: I would want to discuss with him his experience as president in terms of his approach of trying to be, he he tried to work with the other side. Yeah. Right. He tried to to accommodate them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in retrospect, does he feel that that was the right approach or should he have been more set on setting out his own agenda and getting it done Hmm. rather than try to do what he did by including the other side to make them feel comfortable. It's mm, a good question. The other person that I would want to sit and talk with would be Chaim Weizmann, who was the first president of Israel. To okay. so understand better the decisions that were made at the very beginning of uh, Israel's existence when they fought a war for independence against six nations, six the armies from six Arab nations. To understand if, if they in retrospect, in retrospect, he believed that you know what they did was the only path or were there any other options
0: interesting okay i'm glad you brought up uh israel because i have a question so one of your characters and i'm not sure if i'm if i'm uh pronouncing this correctly but one of your characters in incidents at san miguel he wanted to make aliyah is there my aliyah what does that mean and what's the significance of it in the story and, it, and I know it all ties into immigrate, uh, people immigrating and refugees. And tell us a little bit more about this. Because
1: okay, i think so. Um, aliyah, all right. So in the Hebrew language, when you go to Israel, to the Holy Land, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's use that term. When you go to the Holy Land, you may aliyah. Now, aliyah, the root for that word means to go up. So, for instance, in Spanish, subir is to go up. You don't bottle arriba. Okay, you know, vamos arriba literally means, it's a translation from English, go... Oh, quickly, right. Okay, there's a word in Spanish, subir, which means to go up. We have the same word in Hebrew, but we have a Hebrew word, it's la'alot. So, aliyah, so different, different verb form, means to go up. When you leave Israel, so let's say you visit Israel, and you come back to the United States, the, word is, the verb is yoret, to go down. Mm-hmm. Spanish has the same thing bahar go down. Huh. Okay, so it's it's not that it, you can't literally translate from from English to either one of these languages because they have specific words for this. So, the, in modern Hebrew, when someone leaves their place of birth and goes to live in Israel, it's referred to as making aliyah, to go up. That you're going up literally in a, in a, in a metaphysical
0: so, how did this connect to
1: the character in the book? Okay, so this guy, this actually happened. This was true. So,
0: this is part one part of the book that is actually true.
1: That's true. Yes. So, what happened was that Miriam's cousin, her first cousin, who was the son—I uh, think it was the older son—of her uncle Solomon, who was stayed, who stayed in Cuba, and was a confirmed communist and, and a member of the government. His son rediscovered his Jewish roots and decided that he wanted to go to Israel to live. He wanted to make Aliyah.
0: And that's making Aliyah, okay.
1: So, when he did this, or when he decided to do this, and he told his parents that he wanted to do this, it was difficult, because first of all, Cuba had not had diplomatic re- relations with Israel, I think since the 1967 Six-Day War. So, there was no direct way to do this, uh, which meant he needed help, both economically and in terms of you know logistics, You know, just getting visas. And he'd have to go to the United States or Canada first, and I should note that you know the Jewish Agency for Palestine which was the Jewish Agency for Palestine. Now just the Jewish Agency. Uh, the Jewish Agency is a, instrumental in bringing Jews from obscure places all over the world to Israel. And in the late 1990s, they did run an operation where about 1,200 Cuban Jews made uh, immigration made aliyah to Israel. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1998. Although he this he was not involved. The, the, the real person from this character was not involved in that. When he told his father that he wanted to do this, his father said, well, you know, you need to contact your own. And he helped him. So the reason why, it's very, very difficult for anyone to explain that connection that we as Jews have to our heritage and specifically to Israel. Yeah. Okay. When we go to visit, when I went to Israel for the first time, I was in 1983 and I was 26 years old. When I got off that plane, I felt like I was coming home.
0: i just got chills that's really interesting yeah
1: okay so why is is that okay because and then i'm going to reference back to my trip to hungary let's say i'll give you an example one of my dearest friends is italian on both sides and some years ago he and his wife who's also italian on both sides went to italy on a vacation and they went to the villages where their grandparents were born and you know he said to me it really was incredible to go there And not only to see where they walked as children, but to shake hands with people who are my relatives, who I didn't even know existed. Ah. So there's a very tangible physical connection for my friend and his wife when they go to Italy. Really, really tangible because there's still family there. For most Jews, if we go to Europe, Regardless of where in Europe we go, whether it's you know, Salonika, Greece, or Warsaw, Poland, or Paris, or wherever, if we're going to where our grandparents were born, or our great grandparents were born, or even our parents were born, the community is gone. And the trappings of the community have been destroyed over the last 80 years, both during the war and after, particularly in Eastern Europe under Communists. The remnants of those trappings are in Israel. Hmm. And, uh, and the descendants of some of the survivors who did not stay in Europe are in Israel. So, for instance, I have a very extended family in Israel. I don't have, I have only one, this, this one cousin that I'm in touch with in Hungary, but we'll get to that in a second. So, when I go to Israel, I'm coming home. Right. And that's where everything is. That's where all, all the, 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 what remains of our history there is now kept in Israel. So, our connection to Israel is is very intimate, and it's very hard to explain to someone who doesn't have that connection. Now, alternatively, when I took my son to Hungary, I also had a revelation. It's not so much that I felt I was coming home, but that I kind of understood that who I am, that I'm a Hungarian Jew. That's how I was raised, right. because I was raised by Hungarian Jews. Yeah. When I got to the villages where my grandparents were born, there were no Jews there. And there, was no, there were no relatives there. there. And when we went to this tiny village, you can't even call it village. It was more like a hamlet. It was 12 houses on the top wow. of the mountain where my grandfather was born. And I met these three old people. And long story short, through Google Translate, I explained to them who I am. And this old man, the only word in English, he, well, he didn't even have English. He had the Slovak word, "žid." And he points at me and he says, "žid." I said, yes. And he pointed at a house and he said, that's the house, ha- you know, Slovak, which I didn't understand. Telling me that's the house, wow. so, I walked into the house where my grandfather was born 125 years earlier, and who my son is named after, and my son is with me. But it's not the same as getting off the plane in Israel.
0: Of I, 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 I understand that. Okay, I do. That's what that's about. And and you know, all of those Jews em- emigrated to other places, to the Dominican Republic, to Cuba to wherever so like you said there there's no one there they're not there anymore
1: no well it's interesting about cuba and the dominican republic and jewish immigration so cuba had a much larger uh jewish immigration than than the dominican republic and the reason for that was that uh, it's it's it's, this is a fascinating you know sort of factoid so when the american government under tremendous pressure changed from from you know from right-wing elements in this country changed the um immigration law here in 1924 they ended open immigration and they set up a quota system for for european immigration because they wanted to maintain the balance between european ethnic groups what percentage of the ethnic group of americans came from Poland? what came from italy what came from france england sweden etc etc so this quota system was set up which i must add did not take in you know jewish you know the, the fact that you were Jewish into uh, account at all. So in after 1924, there was no, but at the same time, there was no limit on immigration from Latin America, which today, you know, is such an enormous question. You know, it's such an enormous issue. Oh, we're being overrun by Spanish-speaking people from Latin America.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Although, let's take on from Cuba, in which case it's okay because Cuba's communist. Okay. All right, so European Jews who could not get to the United States would go to Cuba Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, and they would wait uh, till they could become citizens in those countries and then legally enter the United States without an immigration vote. They used to refer to Havana as the Hotel Havana because that's where a lot of Jews from Poland would go to wait to be able to enter the United States after 1924. The Dominican Republic is a little different story. The Dominican Republic did not have the level of immigration at that time that Cuba did. But what happened in the Dominican Republic was that in 1938, and this is you know detailed in, in my book, I think of you, Maxwell or Rothman, in 1938, uh, because of the tremendous uh, immigration problem that existed you know, in Europe, there, be, there were 250,000 uh, stateless refugees in Europe, all Jews from Germany and what was prior to that Austria, which had been absorbed by Germany and part of the Czech Republic, the Sudetenland, which had also been... Uh, absorbed by Germany, uh, President Roosevelt called a conference at Avion, France, which was surprisingly called the Avion Conference. Twenty-eight uh, nations attended this, and the only nation that offered substantial numbers for Jewish immigration was the Dominican Republic. And so, why would this tiny, impoverished island nation offer to take up to 100,000 Jewish refugees in 10 years, o- over a period of 10 years? With 110,000 the first year, because the dictator, the fascist dictator of the Dominican Republic, who was a nominal ally of the United States, certain uh, Trujillo, Rafael Trujillo, he had massacred some 25,000 Haitians a year earlier along the uh, Haitian-Dominican border, something called the Parsley War. Mm -hmm. And the Roosevelt administration was furious with him. He wanted to get back into their good graces. So that was reason number one. Reason number two was that Juvia himself, who was actually dark-skinned and covered himself with pancake makeup to make himself appear lighter. Wow. He was a terrible, vicious racist. And he thought that by bringing in 100,000 European white Jews, most of them men, because he preferred single men, they would, he, they would marry the Dominican women and lighten the skin tone of the Dominican people. So when you- Wow. Think- that's, that's, okay, so the tragedy of this was that he offered to take 10,000 refugees immediately and only 854 went. So why is it that only 854 refugees went? Because the international Jewish leadership to their shame did not want large numbers of Jewish refugees from Europe going anywhere but Palestine, which was then under British control. They wanted to force the Brits to open up Palestine to Jewish immigration. The pa- Brits had Brits had closed it off because of, of their relations with the Arabs. That goes way back. So as a result, the Dominican Republic only, only you know, there was only 854 people went. You know, I mean, there were other stragglers who went elsewhere, but Sosua only attracted 854 residents. So you know, there are other countries, So for instance, on my father's side, I had a lot of immigration from Poland to Mexico. They went to Guatemala first, from Guatemala to Mexico. And then from Mexico, they entered the United States at El Paso. Now most of them live in Texas or mm-hmm. in California. So
0: you know, it, it's, in Cuba there was something like fifteen thousand.
1: Yes, there were fifteen thousand Jews huh. in Cuba. The, the, right, the, the who left,
0: left after the most, most of whom left after the revolution. Ninety
1: percent left after the revolution.
0: That's, that's a huge amount. Ninety percent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason behind this was very simple: uh, is that most of them were business owners. Right,
0: you said it was entre- entrepreneurial based, not anti-Semitic. Right.
1: There was no there. There was in Cuban Jews will tell you that there, there was virtually no anti-Semitism yeah. in Cuba. It, that just was not the problem. Right. They weren't even referred to as Jews for the most part. they in Spanish, the Cubans referred to the Jews as Polacos, which means Poles, because most of them came from Poland.
0: Okay. Interesting. So uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. You said, uh, Alan, that the writer is in every character. So which character do you connect with the most?
1: In and this book? It, it,
0: it could be, yeah, let's talk about this book. Or if, there, if there's really another one that you really connect to in one of your other novels, let us know.
1: In this book, I think I connect with, the, truthfully, I connect with Solomon or, or the, the Moises character more than I connect with the uh, our own character, because my own politics prior to prior to writing this book, and that's interesting, because it it really kind of changed my viewpoint about certain issues of politics. I really do uh, sort of identify with him more. Uh, I am a very idealistic and very altruistic in terms of politics, and I believe in, a, in an egalitarian system where all people have what they need and all people are treated fairly, and that's sort of the basis of. You know, of the economic and theoretical basis of communism, Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, you know communism adopted and adapted a uh, a method of social control that puts it on a square footing with fascism and it and and what they might claim to have accomplished is far outweighed by the treatment they have given to people who don't agree with that with their political and social views so in in this case yes my my altruism uh, and the altruism of that character comes more from from me as particularly in the respect that um i had the opportunity to interview uh, miriam's father extensively <laughs> at the uh at the same time i you know i i sort of acknowledge that uh you know it just didn't work out but as i was saying you know i, inter- I interviewed miriam's father extensively but in terms of her uncle, I couldn't interview him because he was dead. He right. died in 2012. So I did manage to speak to people who knew him and ask them questions about him. Uh, you know, Miriam's father, Miriam's mother, uh, Miriam's aunt and uncle, her cousins, in order to determine, you know, um, to understand more about him and who he was. Uh so and it's not to say that I don't I don't uh identify with the terrible struggles that the our own character faces. I do. I mean I absolutely do. But uh if you're asking me who sort of is sort of more reflective of me, I'd say certainly politically, uh at least before I wrote this book. Be, uh, the brother Yeah, the brother, yeah.
0: The brother who stayed in Cuba.
1: Yeah, you know, yes. Uh in general in my other books. You know, people who know me, who've read my books, will will tell you that the Krachenko character in the Forgiving series was pretty much 90% me.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay. So if you want to get to know the real Alan, read, definitely read that book. So tell us, um, you've also said this. Why is it important to pay it forward?
1: You know, I'm a really big believer in that. Uh, it's so important. You should help whoever you can help. And, you know, my grandfather used to have this expression, you know, do something for a thank you. Right. And if someone comes out and does something for you out of the goodness of their heart, you should always keep that in mind. And when you have an opportunity to do the same, you should do it. You know, uh, uh, it's all about the love you spread. Okay? Sure. And so I believe that. The problem is that people don't really see that today.
0: So, Alan, you're, you're an avid student of history, a voracious reader.
1: Uh- yes, yeah, I am. I really I, I read a lot of books.
0: Yeah, and you said that you got that from your fa- your parents were avid readers. You said also my parents were
1: uh, always avid readers. My parents always had a book on each night table.
0: That that's one. So which which author has influenced you the most?
1: Oh, there's a few. Okay, so um, the biggest influence, the the the, the author who made me want to be an author. Okay. Yeah. There's two. Okay, I'm waiting. There's three.
0: There's three. Oh. three. Okay.
1: Doctor Zhivago. Hmm that book changed my life boris pasternak this was the most lyrical and consuming work i had ever read and i read it as a teenager wow and it blew me away it's a combination of the story, the prose, and the way this, it, it just his way of telling the story and the elements of the story. You know, a good story has to have certain things. It needs a little history. It needs a little mystery. It needs a lot of tension. It needs a little bit of romance.
0: That sounds like a lot of your pop. <laughs> yeah, but
1: that's, you know, he, so his, that sort of, that sort of uh, structure and form had a lot of influence. The second was Leon Yours and my books. The structure of my books reflect the structure of his books in a certain way. Although today you can't get away with as an author what he got away with, which is to tell one story for a hundred pages and then, you know, go to part two and start with another story and tell another story for a hundred pages and then switch back. You know, at page three hundred, you can't do that anymore.
0: And he was an author of historical fiction.
1: Yes, he wrote historical fiction. He wrote historical fiction all over the world. I mean, he wrote, you know. Uh, Exodus. He wrote Mule Eighteen. He wrote The Hodge. He wrote Trinity, which was about the Irish Revolution. I mean, it's it just uh, fantastic storytelling. But he also wrote seven hundred page books. You can't get a seven hundred page book published today. I mean, I, when I wrote The Interpreter, the first the first draft of the Interpreter was five hundred and fifty ish pages.
0: That was cut down a lot. <laughs> the
1: uh, uh, the publisher said to me, No, 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 no. <laughs> and you have about three hundred and fifty
0: pages. So a lot of short attention spans, Alan.
1: Now you know. Listen, readers. When it's interesting is a Jewish Book Council told me that when um, when book clubs come to them and say give us a list of ten books to read this year, mm-hmm. uh, one of the questions they asked is how long should the books be? And uniformly they say between three hundred and three hundred fifty pages. Interesting. Okay. So the third is Ernest Hemingway.
0: Ah, me too.
1: Because no one has ever managed to be to write with the with the economy of words that he writes.
0: I agree. He's, he's been a huge influence in my life, too, his writing. Yes, I agree.
1: He's been really, really, really sort of, you know, beaten down and people criticize him for all kinds of stuff, you know, about his personal life, about his attitudes about women, the fact that you know, he's all, he only wrote one strong female character. that He was a drunk, you know, he, he was misogynistic. Okay. Right. No, it was also 100 years ago. Right. So
0: Yeah, exactly. Look at his work. And he was yeah. also a brilliant writer. So, right.
1: read it. <laughs> yeah. So my top three. So, the, so no, the close number four is Isaac Isaac Dyson. You know, Karen Lickson.
0: So, what was the last book you read that you loved?
1: Okay, so the last book I read that I loved. All right. Well, there's a lot. You know. Um, okay. I I read a book while I was on the dr. There's two that I recently read that are really worth noting. So one is a book called The Prodigal Spy. By Joseph Cannon. I've read almost everything Joseph Cannon has written, and the man is just brilliant. And I wish I could write as well as he does. And he writes. He writes post-war spy novels primarily, but he has a tremendous uh, style, and it's just the pace of the novels is great. You know, the uh, one of the things that I've been criticized for is that there's not a lot of description, and there's not a lot of internals. Because I like action and I like dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's what I include. He does the same thing it's, it's a lot of dialogue. You don't have to, you know, I don't need to know what color everybody's shirt is. Right. Know, right. How long her hair was, you know, I don't even need to know what color the woman's hair is because let me imagine the character myself.
0: Right. It's, it's, so, it's a different way of writing, but yeah.
1: Absolutely brilliant. And it's fast paced and I love it. And and I would read anything he wrote. The other book that I was just talking about that at lunch, this book at lunch today is a book called a, a house on endless waters by uh an israeli writer called emuna Elon, and it was written in hebrew and i would read it in translation and it's a fascinating book look it's very literary and i don't usually go for very literary for personal reading but honestly this was so unique it's a it's it's got two storylines it's set in amsterdam in the present and then amsterdam during the occupation the nazi occupation and basically the basic plot is that the main character is a writer, and he discovers that in fact he was not born in what was then British occupied Palestine. That he was born during the war in Amsterdam, and he goes back to Amsterdam to try to discover the truth of who he is.
0: Oh, that's right up your alley. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, That sounds great.
1: The most interesting thing about it is that the way she presents the backstory is that it's you are learning about his research, and he's thinking about how he's going to write the novel. Ah. Uh. So you're it's 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 literally you're reading the mind of a writer thinking about how to write a novel. So for a writer,
0: I was going to say novel. for a writer it's a perfect book to read. I'm going to have I'm going to have to pick that one up. Thanks for the suggestion. So Alan, can you share with our listeners the most important lesson you've learned in life? <laughs> I know that's a big one. That's a big one.
1: The most important this, the most important lesson is that you should live every day like it's your last day, because you don't know when you're going to have your last day. So if there's something you want to do in life, do it. Don't put it off. And if you're miserable at what you're doing and you want to change, make the change. Don't make excuses why you don't make the change. I was very, very fortunate. When I was 17 years old, my, <laughs> my parents, I was a senior in high school and I was going off to college and my parents said to me, well, what do you want to study and what do you want to do? And I said, I want to study English and I want to be a writer. And my parents said, No, 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 no. That's a terrible idea. It's not good. It's not for a Jewish boy. You have to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant living <laughs> and support a family. Okay. So I didn't become a writer. I ended up in the real estate business for some 35 or 40 years. And then in 2009, the bank I was working at collapsed and they were taken over by the OCC. And the day before the takeover, I was let go. So this was the mer- middle of the great recession and I had no job. And my wife says to me, what are you going to do? You can't sit here all day. And I'm like, well, I think I'm going to get, get uh, certified as a personal trainer and I can make some cash. And then I want to finish writing my novel, which was forgetting Maxwell Rothman. So she just, she rolls her eyes and she had a re- very good job at the time, which the key to which was that she had medical insurance, platinum style. Uh,
0: oh, yes.
1: Now, yeah. there's a statement on our day. Yes. Okay? So she said to me, fine, go finish it. I'm tired of, hear- I'm tired of hearing about it. So I was it's 53 different. years old when I published, you know, Forgive Me, Maxwell Roth. But I achieved a lifelong dream. I had wanted to be a novelist since I was a teenager. And my best friend from high school, when I published the book, he sent me a note, you know, private message on Facebook when he saw it. it was like, you know, I put it up on Facebook. And he said, you know so happy for you because i know this is what you wanted since you were 16 years old
0: that's amazing so if you want
1: something go out there and get it don't don't make excuses why you didn't just do it
0: well you're living proof of that alan this this has been really so much fun so alan tell us uh what are you working on now
1: well okay so i've done enough stories and books on fascism and communism political turmoil and miserable refugee lifestyles and immigration Okay. I'm done for a while, although there is, a, there is one little story in the back of my head. Ah, it it always is. Years, but it's so ugly that I don't know if I can write it. So I'm working on two things. The thing that I started writing, which requires absolutely no research, oh, is um, a story called Call Me Feldman. It's a book called Call Me Feldman. Well, I'm sorry, Get Me Feldman. Get Me Feldman. And I just came up with the title yesterday. And uh, Get Me Felbin is based in a. It's a story that that's set in a, um, a adult retirement home in Southeast Florida in Broward County.
0: Wow, you're really changing. Okay. okay. Okay,
1: and it's what it is is it's sort of a modern adaptation of um, the relationship between Valjean and Javert from the Miserable. Ah. Okay. So that requires absolutely no research because I've visited many of those retirement homes. <laughs> was and aunts and uncles and grandparents. Uh, and then the bigger project that I'm working on is a book called um, Fielder's Choice, which is the story of a young Dominican uh, baseball player who comes up into the major leagues. And it's about the relationship that he develops with the manager of his team, a guy named, F- uh, a guy named Fielder, who was kind of a failed baseball player who's now managing a uh, you know a baseball team, a major league baseball team that is the worst team in the league, and it's the story about their relationship because this kid is a generational talent and he's got he's going to be traded, so it should be a real tearjerker. And I'm hoping in the, it, with this book, with the baseball book, that men uh-huh. will actually read it because men, know, I'm sorry, I don't read novels; it's a make believe. I like to read history books and books about
0: sports about baseball. So you could draw them in with that. I'm hoping
1: I'm hoping that the the, the baseball element will draw them in.
0: Well, they both sound fantastic. They they sound great. So so lastly, Alan, where can our listeners find out more about you? Because you are incredibly interesting and have a million fantastic stories. And also, where can they purchase Incidents at San Miguel and your other novels?
1: Okay, so let's talk about purchasing first. Uh, mainly, I I market my books on Amazon. You can go okay. to AJ Sedrowski. You can search AJ Sudransky or the titles of any of my books on Amazon, and it will bring you to the page. Uh, where you can purchase that book my books are available in kindle hardcover softcover audible and large print uh if uh, you can go to my website www.ajsidransky.com sedransky uh, all my books are outlined there and you can also reach me at aj at and i am available for both zoom and in-person events I do small groups like, like book clubs, and I do large groups of you know hundreds of people uh, where I talk about my work and where you can buy my books. Um, and that's pretty much where you can find me. I'll tell you, honestly, I mean, I'm on Facebook a little, but I'm not, I'm not an Instagram kind of guy, and I'm definitely not a Twitter kind of guy. So, you know, uh, I, it's easier to reach me by email through my website, or you could look for me on Facebook at either Alan Sedransky or AJ Sedransky Author.
0: Perfect. Alan, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Incident, and Miguel, fantastic. It was really fun. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here, and I hope that we'll get to see each other again.
0: Absolutely. Listeners, next time on The Gap Talks, we will be discussing artscapes with poet Lee Woodman. This is your hostess, Gabby Olszak. Until we meet again, keep on reading.